Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from Oxford University talking about the history of the book, material texts. Uh, my name's Adam Smythe and I'm the University Lecturer in the History of the Book and I'm delighted today on this beautiful summer day to be joined by Dan Wakelin um, here in my tiny little room. And Dan is the Jeremy Griffiths Professor of Medieval English Paleography, which is a long title. Um, but that's his title. And also, very significantly, is the author of a book that's just about to come out. Is that right? It's, yes. It's, it's nearly... Just proofs. It's, we're at the proof stage, which itself is interesting, and maybe we can talk about it. Uh, but the, Because the book is about... The book is called Scribal Correction and Literary Craft, English Manuscripts, 1375 to 1510. And it's about manuscripts, late medieval manuscripts, and, and correction, and, and revision, and getting things wrong and then making them right is that right is that exactly so yes it's a study of the ways that scribes as they mostly are but scribes and readers correct manuscripts in late medieval england only manuscripts in english for the present i focused right. on the vernacular because i was interested in english literary history mm-hmm. and um it's a study of the way that they work in a practical kind of hands-on sense in mm-hmm. the first half of the book mm-hmm. and then explores what those corrections might tell us about the things they think about english literature what they find a tolerable level of variation or of mm-hmm spelling mistake or of metrical slip and what they think has to be put right otherwise it becomes somehow unbearable and unusable and is, is there a kind of other kind of theoretical guides the, the equivalent of kind of the, the proofreader the, or the, the um, copy editor's guide today for these kind of medieval scribes is there a sort of a sense of a, a practice or a benchmark they're working to or is it all more ad hoc than that there are some there are some that are written they're all written in latin and they're written mostly in monastic settings and they in fact um, stretch back to the sixth century to cassiodorus right where through to the 15th. There are manuals and short works telling scribes in monastic settings how to correct, in particular the Holy Scriptures in the Latin Vulgate. They get extremely technical and pernickety down to, you know, variant spellings that we know are both acceptable in medieval Latin, um, but some people worried about them apparently. For the vernacular, no, there's no such thing apart from a few odd comments. Interestingly, in lots of medieval, late medieval English poems, they often end or begin with a request that somebody correct the text. And one of the things that got me interested in the topic was the fact that they looked like critical cliches, you know, um, oh, please, patron, correct my text. And you think, well, that's just blether. And it turns out that people do correct the text. So I wondered whether there might be a bit more force in them. But as for the practical techniques for correcting, the uh, artisans who got on and did it presumably taught each other how to do it in training because the techniques are surprisingly consistent, at least across the century and a half that I looked at in depth. They were evidently teaching each other how to do it, but they didn't write it down very much. And they wrote little notes on what to correct. This should be word X or word Y, for example, but seldom how. One presumes it was oral culture, sort of training among craftsmen. And can, you, can you give us a sense of, of, of the kind of detail of the sort of thing you've been looking at for for this project? Are you looking at um, slips that have then been scratched away or text added in superscript or in the margins or what what kind of stuff are you... All all of the above and in fact in one of the early chapters in the book I thought I firstly need to just run through what the techniques are. Uh, When I started I assumed that one of the textbooks of paleography would tell me about all that but I found that they didn't really. They never had more than a page or so. So I thought well I'll I'll begin with a sort of uh, factual survey of the methods trying to work out what they were. I also did a quantitative survey of a collection of manuscripts in the Huntington Library in California to see which were the most frequent. Um, Erasure with a knife is by far the most frequent. About 40% of the corrections involved scraping something off and writing over the top. That's always a little bit vexing because it would be nice to see what was underneath. But in the other cases, you usually can see the error as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So they had a wide variety of techniques, many of them very visible. And I guess if I can study the erasures, even the erasures are visible, um, at least as a process, if not in terms of the thing erased. But they're, they're 
they're quite, uh, yes, they're quite uh, eye-catching in many cases. Yeah. The weirdest sort were the ones where they went along and crossed things out or interlineated things in their usual plain ink, but then went back and did it again in red afterwards, as though to highlight it in some ways. Um, that seemed very odd, a sort mm -hmm. of a, a kind of overkill, if you yeah. like. Yes, um, medieval equivalent of OCD. Yes, that's right. Yes. I really must make it clear that this is, you know, this is the word and this is where it's going to be inserted in the line. But the funny, I suppose, the funny thing about corrections often is that they don't, they don't get rid of an error, do they? They say to mark it out. You become more aware of, of something that's gone wrong when that's the right. correction is there. Yes, and I was, in, I was, in, I was intrigued by that really because that for me makes the the text that results somehow more contingent. It's mm. as if. It's, it's like reading in a kind of holographic way, as though you've got alternative readings. You know those choose-your-own-adventure books? I used to, my, yes. to my shame, I used to read them. When I... So did I. And it's <laughs> as if here you've got choose-your-own, you know, sort of yeah. choose-your-own-term books. And it's as if one adjective has been inserted, and you can see what would it be like with or without that word. Yeah. And, uh, of course, one is clearly marked as the correct reading, and the, te the technique suggests a preference. But, it, as you say, it does leave the underlying text uh, visible. And that, for me, is why it's of interest for the student of English literature because it, it sort of highlights, perhaps by accident, but it certainly does highlight, even for the early reader, the way that a, a, um, a work of writing involves choices, decisions, shall I leave this in or leave this out, whether that decision was the one made by the author, who knows, but it's certainly one made by the scribe who has a sense that, if you like, every word matters, even ones that are grammatically unnecessary for the sentence to, mm -hmm. to make sense. So is this in some ways a book about the writing process then and how, how creativity works in this period? In a, in a way, and yet I suppose it's, it's sort of, it focuses mostly on the reception of the mm -hmm. writing process and on, on the process of reception is itself a kind of rewriting process. As, on the scribes as literary agents, mm -hmm. I think of them as craftsmen um, both in a, in a sort of hands-on practical sense, people who have these techniques that they've passed on of how, how to do it neatly, how to scrape without tearing the parchment or paper. And then there's craftsmen who, under, by dint of spending all day looking at words, have an understanding of words and of the sense they might, they might matter. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose the two are, for mm -hmm. me, completely connected. You know, to do a good job involves understanding what you're copying as well as the process yeah. of copying. Yeah. And that's something we don't always credit scribes of the vernacular with. I think paleographers often like to describe them primarily as economic agents mm -hmm. uh, or as unwitting agents, unwitting transmitters of text. Mm -hmm. but, um, and editors, of course, have often castigated them as being dull or dumb. And some were. But actually, many of them were alert to the fact that what they were doing, word by word, letter by letter, mm -hmm. could have mm -hmm. some uh, significance. Can you tell me more about scraping? I mean, how does this work? And what what's the tools for it? And they, how fragile is this as a process? And, and, and how does it? How do, how do we scrape? Well, they had knives. So uh, many. Uh, in fact, this is the technique that, if you like, is iconographically most vis visible in this culture. When they draw pictures of scribes, and they're often pictures of authors copying their own work, the evangelists, for example. People hold a pen in the right hand and a knife in the left and you had the knife for all kinds of other things such as holding the parchment down which can be very springy um, but then it meant that you were readily able to scrape something off when you made a mistake while the ink especially was still wet. On parchment you can do it fairly subtly but uh, once you get your eye in you can often pick it up. Um, interestingly you can't on facsimiles often even on digital facsimiles so it was kind of heartening to have some reason to go back to the actual manuscripts but these knives are well attested from uh, things such as word lists of scribal equipment mm -hmm. um, a scraping knife a scraping knife mm -hmm. and so on they 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 have terms of them in latin too mm -hmm. they even um, incredibly used to scrape things off paper sometimes that was of course much more fragile as a writing support so mm -hmm. it's not as common in fact not very common at all but they did sometimes do it 
And when they did tear parchment or paper, they also sometimes had little slips that they could glue in. Um, I can think of a couple of manuscripts in the Bodleian where the scribes have been really clumsy and a sort of a huge gash through, and then a large bit of parchment, and one or two cases with old text on the reverse, has been glued over the top so that they can continue to use a page they've already written three quarters of. So. But I get but if you're writing with your scraping tool to hand, I mean, it kind of lowers the stakes a little bit in copying, doesn't it? I always think yes. of that kind of, that kind of um, scribal work is tremendously kind of high wire, and there's no way back if you're on the penultimate word of a page. And, and something, but it, but it, it's, there's some room for manoeuvre and, and room for error, error being accommodated here. Isn't it? That's a good point, actually. Yes, it takes the pressure off a little bit. And, and they're also happy with other, other techniques, too. They're only quite contented to leave things visibly crossed out. Mm-hmm. Uh, on paper, they often didn't use, or most often didn't use a knife, but so they'll just cross it out in ink and carry on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there was, there, was a, there was room for error. And the scraping is also quite common in certain settings that seem better organised. So books that come from uh, religious orders and the Carthusians mm-hmm. and so on, um, when often you wonder whether somebody else has come along later and done it for them and yeah. checked their work. Yeah. Lots of copies of Nicholas Love's Mirror of the Blessed Life, a sort of a life of Jesus written to sort of give the, the lay folks something to read that wasn't heretic. Right. Um, often have wonderful, um, meticulous scrapings of erroneous passages done quite carefully and I think later because there are prompts in the margin sort of written in with a dry point with a blunt nib or in some sort of pale lead that's been rubbed off, sort of saying, as if to say, scrape this bit off and write these words right. instead. Last week I went to a great conference which was mainly contemporary 21st century book art people who do weird things to books, like they shoot bullets through books or they eat them or they um, emboss them in curious ways. And there was an exciting sense of the novelty of what was going on in the the now of book art. But clearly there's there's, there's centuries of of precedent to this kind of remaking of the page, which these people need to know about. Yes, they were were very happy to have that. And, And there are a few cases, for example, where the errors were, the corrections, sorry, were adorned really beautifully. Mm. The most famous is in a manuscript in the British Library, or in two manuscripts, sorry, both made identically by scribes in around 1411 or 12, of Hockleaves' The Regiment of Princes, a sort of political poem. They missed a stanza out right at the back of the manuscript on one of the last few leaves and wrote it in the margin and then painted very, very laboriously a picture of a man lassoing it back into position. And he's got his head, sort of his feet put, you know, pushing against a little sort of grassy sort of tussock mm-hmm. as he's trying to get this stanza back into the right position. It would have been much quicker to scrap the leaf, and I think it's even the first or second leaf of the choir, so mm-hmm. it wouldn't have lost a lot of work, to start again. Mm-hmm. But instead they've made a virtue out of it and turned you know, the, the fragility of the text, if you like, into something yeah. of uh, admiration. Yeah. I mean, so did li- do the literary texts themselves reflect on these material practices? I mean, are there, are there little vignettes of, of, of this as a possible future for the manuscript? I mean, There are a few, have... yes. So um, the, uh, there are a few in poetry before Chaucer. There's one poem, The, the Prick of Conscience, that was the most of widely disseminated poem in Middle English, which ends with um, the comments that the, uh, the poem will need to be corrected by mm-hmm. people who know a bit more about metre mm-hmm. than the poet does. And then Chaucer himself popularises uh, this way of ending your poem with an envoy that requests correction. Th- they can be specific in some cases. They'll often mention tools that are used, and in particular they mention a tool, the stylus. So lots of rough jotting, we think, was done 
done on wax tablets right the way through from antiquity well into the early modern period. And the point about a wax tablet is it also comes with an easy method of erasure. So writing was bound, writing in the sense of composition, sorry, was bound up with the idea of erasing and, and removing mm-hmm. uh, from, from the sort of outset of the process. So they'll often say um, that they, they, they've been wielding their style, which means the stylus as well as a literary style. Wow, and so the idea of literary style is, is sort of uh, predicated on, if you like, erasing to get it right oh. and improving. Um, and that that is that's, that's fascinating that, that that idea of style and and stylus and style emerging as a result of kind of meticulous reworking and 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 redrafting and cutting away um so style is something which is isn't at all spontaneous or innate it's this thing you you you, re, you redraft over yes, a long you period craft, of time if you like yeah. i think that's right and um the, the scribes are often attentive to and um, they're attentive to everything in their correcting but they're often attentive to features that I think one would only, one could only, one could not explain in a utilitarian way, but only as sort of features of style. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the use of doublets, so uh, um, with weeping and woe. Often the text, as they first copy it, will have the word weeping, and then they'll realise, oh, we needed and woe, or it'll, um, um, he ran and he scarpered. Oh, let's add back the and scarpered. That doesn't add anything to sense, to the narrative flow, but it's about the rhythm of the prose, and it's about the accuracy of the copying, yes, but also the rhythm of the prose, mm-hmm. the style, the sort of gravitas of two, mm-hmm. using three words where one would have done. It's not always clear whether they've guessed correctly which features matter to the author, but if they've treated them like they matter, then they mattered in that culture. Mm-hmm. So you've got a kind of reception history of style, mm-hmm. if not quite an accurate sense of how the authors crafted it. So, so, is this, so is this an author-centric model? I mean, are scribes trying to work out how to deliver what the authors wanted, or is this a more playful, or are the scribes themselves becoming sort of proto-age, uh, proto-author creative agents themselves? Well, with um, with um, a few exceptions, my sense was often that it was not author-centric, because mm-hmm. they were willing to invent solutions to mm-hmm. problems, and in the process of inventing, cannot have had any sense of surety though they might have had a hope mm. that they'd reconstructed the author's original work mm. words or works. I don't think this is a sort of an interest in the author as a historical figure. Let's reconstruct Chaucer's or Lydgate's mm. exact phrasing. I often think of it as a, um, an interest in the text having its own kind of logic. This is the sort of thing that would fit into this sentence. This is the sort of rhyme we need here to complete this stanza. And fingers crossed it might be authorial but that doesn't seem to be their main focus otherwise how could they invent things as willfully and and I suspect even their um, accurate um, corrections are often based on guesswork Mm -hmm. because we could all guess when a knot is missing from a a statement in a religious poem for example because it'll be heretical or not but uh, they also make more outlandish guesses for example when whole lines have gone astray through somebody else's copying error mm-hmm. in the exemplar they will then sometimes invent a line to fill the gap mm-hmm. they can't have thought that was authorial but it does certainly fit the text because it always rhymes and it makes sense in context if often a slightly banal sense um, but uh, yes those I always think they're I always I think of them almost as again that word formalist is perhaps not quite the word, but kind of um, text-centred rather than author-centred mm-hmm. figures, people interested in, mm-hmm. in the text's own logic. I wanted to also ask a little bit about kind of about the end of your period, your 1375 mm. to 1510, and about print and early early print, and whether things, about that, that relationship between manuscripts, whether things change once we're, we're writing manuscripts alongside these, these, these new, newfangled printed things. Well, one of the problems with that is assessing when the manuscripts were written at mm. that period. So often they're just somewhere in the late 15th right. century, so who knows whether they're before or after printing in English takes off from um, the 1470s. Uh, and I also didn't make a thorough study of printed books, mm. so I, I haven't got those to compare, compare with uh, precisely. But um, 
uh, correcting was also important in printed books too, but I do have a sense that there's something slightly different there because printing then can happen in the process of making the book and then can be kind of concealed from the reader in some ways. I know it's not always. There are often pre um, pen corrections added perhaps in the printing house or somebody working in connection with the printing house later, but many of the of the corrections in printed books are only visible to us as modern scholars who collate two or three copies, you know, the Hinman collator. I don't think many people are doing that in the late 15th century. Not many. Um, and only a few nutters, perhaps. So that's hard to tell. But the one thing that does happen then is you see the, the, the liveliness of correcting by readers in early printed books. Mm. Um, in humanist uh, trained schoolrooms, the thing that the boys had to do before they got onto parsing the Latin mm. was correct the rather shoddy printing of the Latin books that had been imported mm. um, from France or the Low Countries or wherever. So they, um, many uh, humanist Latin school books have lots and lots of corrections in uh, of typing of typing typing errors um, of typographical errors mm -hmm. uh, uh, on the pages. So you get a sense that correcting was almost in a way there going on more visibly in the hands of readers, mm. um, whereas actually in the vernacular manuscripts of the late Middle Ages, very few can be securely linked to readers. Um, it's hard to tell when a correction is so small whose handwriting is, but often it looks like it is still the scribe or else some collaborator who's helped him make the book. So can I ask you a question about genre and, mm. and how we've, we've touched on, on it a little bit, the degree to which these cultures of correction are particular to particular genres and, and, and different kinds of texts operate with different attitudes to this kind of ludic culture of correction you've been talking about, but also maybe an emerging sense of accuracy and, and that kind of thing. Well, there are a few slight patterns here, but they're not as striking as I'd hoped, actually, from the outset. As I mentioned, I surveyed all the manuscripts in the Huntington Library, and the thing I was hoping to find was that, uh, you know, there'd be some clear correlation between, I don't know, canonicity or religiosity or some genre or something. Um, and the patterns weren't quite as tidy as that. There was a slightly greater frequency of correcting in works of religious prose and verse, mm -hmm. but that's a large category in late Middle English. I mean, a huge amount of the writing could be called religious in some way. So, but there is a slight, slightly greater frequency of it in religious writing. There is also uh, there are also a few genres where which are corrected in distinctive ways. So, uh, rhyming verse is corrected quite often with attention to the rhyme, which obviously can only be done in that particular form. They're very very interested in rhyme, even to the extent of correcting spellings to create i rhymes, where the poet has rather forced the rhyme a little bit, or where language change has altered the rhyme. Um, in terms of other genres, one genre I didn't look at because it didn't come up in my sort of sample is romance. And my sense is that the scribes of romance have very different attitudes to the text from the scribes of, say, Chaucer's works, which already in the 1400s had a sort of air of authority and prestige around them, uh, perhaps as religious texts did. Romances were not quite esteemed in the same way. They were enjoyed, but not necessarily esteemed in the same ways. And from the few manuscripts I've looked at, they're not corrected quite as thoroughly or carefully, but they are actually more uh, openly rewritten and altered, mm -hmm. so that might be a different kind of um, engagement with Yeah, because I wonder about romance, which, you, which are all about meanderings and wanderings in, yes. in their structure, aren't they? And whether there's equivalent with error and errare and, and that kind of lost nights in, 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 in these kind of landscapes of error and, and, and the text itself. And they're open to the reader's um, desires, in a way, I think, um, late medieval romances. Um, they, they, they express, if you like, the kind of reader's um, or sort of uh, meet the reader's passions or wishes, you know, um, wish fulfilment for a certain kind of lifestyle, a certain kind of adventure. So one could imagine um, scribes as readers, they're often copied by amateurish scribes, um, um, uh, people copying for their own enjoyment. 
investing romances with more of their own interest. Um, But uh, it's important not to simplify too much. I'm sure we could find cases where they have been corrected meticulously, though I can't think of any off the top of my head. Mm. I can think of one where it's been rewritten because it's an authorial uh, autograph, but that's or holograph, but that's a different case Mm. entirely. Is is this correction moralised more broadly? I mean, is 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 it about more than just getting the the rhyme right or inserting the word that's missing? Is, is it a marker of religious or other kind of virtue that you are a, a good scribe and a careful scribe? There are some clear ideas about correction being a morally valuable act in itself, almost regardless of the of the result. Firstly, there was a a, a religious notion of fraternal correction, of putting right people's sins mm-hmm. and of making amends. If you think about it, medieval culture in its religious aspect is all about making amends, mm-hmm. putting right what went wrong. Mm-hmm. And then people also wrote about the copying of religious texts as something that might be merit-worthy in itself and getting it right might be a sign of your commitment and your humility and not altering it and not allowing it to, to err mm-hmm. could be a sign of your, of your dutifulness, your sort of uh, piety, if mm-hmm. you like. But then there's also a kind of an ethics in correcting anything, I think, a kind of a, 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 sort, of a, a sort of an ethical choice. You don't need to correct the way you speak. We all speak with, as I am now, we all speak with slips of the tongue, with errors, with, with um, inaccuracy, ungrammaticalness. We report people's words loosely all the time. And the world carries on. You don't need to be correct. That's quite important. Mm-hmm. And though I think we, we sometimes pretend that we do if we're academics or mm-hmm. trained by printed books and what we think about them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but actually, so actually to bother to get your copy correct as a scribe is I think a, a, an ethical stance, if not a moral one. Yeah. Um, it's to say this matters enough to me, even though this is merely a fiction, merely in the vernacular and not in Latin, all of those things that should make it worthless according to what we think about mm-hmm. 15th century culture, mm-hmm. uh, actually is, is, is to make a claim for it and a claim about your own dignity as an artisan, to say mm-hmm. I'm doing a job and I'm going to do it as well as I can. Mm-hmm. I became very interested in the idea of craftsmen doing the book and interested in the writings of some sort of 20th century writers on craft like um, John Pye a kind of wood turner who, who taught craft at, I think at the Royal College of Arts and um, the sociologist Richard Sennett in his book The Craftsman about the way that just doing a job accurately might in itself be um, yeah, an ethically serious act mm-hmm. regardless of any um, particular sort of um, uh, local cont- contextual mm-hmm. ideas about mm-hmm. what's valuable and part of that but, but and also to give us something you said a moment ago, planting an error can be a way of marking a text as individually yours, can't it? Um, I, I know in my first book I had a fictitious entry in my index. Which <laughs> oh, that's was, a, yeah, um, a traditional kind of slip, isn't it? Yeah. The German, German um, works of reference are supposed to have this, is Really, right? really. Yes. Um, so Stotes, page 32, and if you look at page 32, there are no Stotes. And I don't think you can do this anymore <laughs> because of the way indexes are now done and every term has to be linked, kind of hyperlinked. Yes. So you, you can't have a, a hanging Stote. No, were, no. Which is a sad loss, but you could in those days. And, so, and, and, and I did that out of a spirit of, of sort of making this thing, which would become an anonymous out there, sort of have a trait that only I would know about, or, or some, some kind of little, little signature. But, but I wanted to just close down by asking about your... So your book is in proofs now. You yes, have I've done the proofs. You've done so. the proofs. And it, it's a nice... A nice meta to nice meta moment to be correcting your book on scribal correction and and how was that as it, were there errors were the slips, there were, did it make you think about your topic I corrected it far more carefully than I've corrected anything else I can say right. because I can just imagine people waiting to find a I typo know. you can see the um, reviews yes um so with the uh, the quotations that came from the manuscripts in the Huntington Library. Um, a while ago I actually went all the way back to California just to check all of the quotations because I thought they've got to be right mm. and called the, uh, the manuscripts and I did actually some more 
that on the final proofs with um, one in the British Library that I remembered I hadn't had time to double check. So I went back and double checked it and found a punctus, a full stop, misplaced and put it right. So it's got to be right. Yeah. Um, so I, yes, I became very anxious about about accuracy in proofreading this particular book. Uh, but I also, um, as I mentioned, I, I, I tried to quantify certain things. I also became, in the process of doing that, aware of how impossible that is actually, mm. how blurred the lines are between the categories into which I was trying to sort different kinds of correction, different sort of attitudes. And so I, and, uh, having dabbled in fixing things in numbers, I became very um, unhappy about that process in a way. And I'm willing to admit the fallibility of such an endeavour. Um, I, I, I think I say something in the introduction now that the, the figures are, as they put it in um, uh, opinion polls, they're indicative, indicative of trends. Yeah. So um, I became much more happy to see um, that kind of pinpoint precision as um, as a rhetorical tool actually as much as um, an accurate reflection of the world to say that 40% of corrections do X it's only 40% in those manuscripts yes. and who knows if they're representative and actually how did I classify the one or two percent on the on the boundary that used erasure but also used another technique how do they how do they get sorted out so mm -hmm. I became very um, aware of the contingency of things and also about the way that all people make errors mm -hmm. um, transcribing large amounts of Middle English in, in letter by letter detail especially if I'm interested in their spelling and then double checking it I realize how easy it is to to, to make a slip of transcription and how easy it is for all human beings actually mm -hmm. to err mm -hmm. and I became much more um, I suppose charitable about that I think in the past you think oh there's an error in this academic book mm -hmm. I thought I learned to think well there are errors in all books and uh, to correct them is partly a sign of respecting them to think that they're worth the effort mm -hmm. and can be as they used to say in the Middle Ages um, an act of caritas of love or charity as well if it's done in the right spirit so only review it in a charitable manner please. Well, I think on that on that on that um, humane note, we should uh, draw things to a close. So, scribal correction is out imminently. Um, apparently so. Uh, bookshops and airports around the world. Um, thank you very much, Dan, for talking to me about your wonderful book, and thank you for listening. And we will be back soon with more reflections on the history of the book and on manuscripts. Bye bye.